How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? These are questions raised by King David at the beginning of Psalm 13. They're questions that all of us have asked or will ask. God, where are you? How could you let this happen? Do you even care? Questions like these are always prompted by crisis, whether an individual crisis, a family crisis, a national crisis, or a global crisis. Questions like these are always prompted by suffering. They come at those times in life when we become acutely aware of the fact that things are not as they should be. Typically, these questions are raised in the wake of tragedy, often after the loss of a loved one. And these are the types of questions that capture well the feelings being experienced by the Israelites in Egypt. The Hebrew slaves feel as if God is absent. They're crying out in their pain. God, where are you? Despite all feelings and appearances, everything, though, was unfolding according to God's perfect will. God was not caught surprised when a new pharaoh was coronated. In fact, he raised this pharaoh up for this very purpose, that he might gain glory through him so that he might showcase his power through signs and wonders, so that he might make his name known throughout all the earth, so that all peoples would know that the God of Israel is real, and he is a God who delivers. That's actually what Exodus is primarily about. God making his glory known, and God making for himself a distinct people, In fact, we might do well to summarize not only the book of Exodus, but the entire Bible and the Christian gospel in this sentence. God works sovereignly to save a special people for his own glory. One of the things we will learn as we dive into the book of Exodus together, we're in chapter 1 this morning, is that circumstances do not determine God's plans but that God's plans determine circumstances. And it is God's plan that has Israel enslaved and feeling as if he is not there. But the lesson that Israel would learn, and the lesson we ought to learn, is that neither our present circumstances nor our perceptions about God's absence determine reality. Friends, God is present, and he is at work. That's the main idea this morning, that God is present and at work, and he is present and at work in suffering. 
Our outline is going to look like this. We're going to see a population boom among the Israelites in the first seven verses of chapter 1. And then the rest of the chapter is devoted to Egypt's attempts at controlling the overwhelming immigration growth. And so we'll see that Pharaoh and his uh, followers will try to oppress the Israelites via slavery, via the secret killing of their infants, and then eventually through genocide. Let's pray together and get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come humbly to your word, to a book that lays many a foundation for our faith. It teaches us so much about who you are. Father, we ask that you would teach us well this morning. Holy Spirit, come and be our teachers, our teacher, and give us a great sense of your glory this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we read the first few verses, it's important to know that to understand Exodus well, we need to think of it in light of the entire Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is a word that we use to describe the first five books of the Bible. So uh, they all tell the same story. It starts in Genesis with the creation of all things, and then God makes a promise to Abraham in chapter 12, and then it ends, the Pentateuch ends, with Israel on the borders of the promised land about to go in. So it works well to think of Exodus kind of as a chapter, a lengthy chapter at that, in that book of the story of Israel's journey to the promised land. And the opening verses of Exodus want to ensure us of the fact, they want us to know that it is directly related to Genesis. The first word in the book, it won't come across in your translation, is actually and, right? And so Genesis ends and then Exodus picks up and says, and these are the names. That's actually the title in Hebrew is these are the names, not as exciting as Exodus, but as these are the names. And the genealogy that it begins with is It has a distinct purpose. It wants to tie all these events that are about to happen back to what has come before. Additionally, it mirrors Genesis 46, 8. And so we need to read Genesis in light of what we've learned from, I'm sorry, we need to read Exodus in light of what we learned from Genesis. And so the book begins. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. The mention of Joseph, too, points us back to Genesis and reminds us of how they ended up here in the first place. If you recall Joseph's story, his brothers sell him unjustly into slavery, he ends up imprisoned unjustly, but somehow he ascends to the, the prominent position of being Pharaoh's right-hand man by way of his ability to interpret dreams. His ability to interpret dreams allows him to foresee a great famine that will come and plague all the land. And so what they do, he and the Pharaoh, is they stockpile food in Egypt. And Egypt kind of becomes this center during these years of famine where People from all around are coming to get food in order to survive. While Joseph's family was not exempt from this famine, and they had a need of food. And it's in their journey to Egypt that they are reconciled with Joseph. It's where they're reunited. One thing leads to another, and eventually they move to Egypt. 
God actually tells them to do this. He says to Jacob in Genesis 46, 2 through 4, God spoke to Israel in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, he said. And Jacob replied, here I am. God said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you back. And Joseph will put his hands on your eyes. Now Jacob would die in Egypt, and Joseph would carry his bones so that he could, they could lay his bones down with Abraham and Isaac and his father. And though Jacob died, God's promise lived on. His redemptive purposes were waiting to be realized. You see, Israel is being made into a great nation, and God will take them into the promised land. Jacob's family had come to Egypt as 70, but they would grow. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then Joseph and all of his brothers in that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. Verses 6 and 7 show us two things. Israel is fulfilling the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply, and God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham and to Jacob to make him into a great nation. They had come down as 70, and eventually we learn in chapter 12 that their numbers had grown to over 600,000, not counting women and children. And so God is keeping this promise. He is very present and at work. Though soon his presence would be a little bit more difficult to sense. His work more difficult to perceive, as we read in verse 8. A new king who had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt. A, a new king, a new pharaoh comes into power, and he wants to make clear that there's a new sheriff in town. When the text says he didn't know Joseph, it is unlikely that it means he's never heard of him. What's more likely is that he knows of Joseph. He knows that the Israelites had come here as a re result of that, but that this reference means that he refused to honor any prior arrangements that would protect the status of Israelites. You see, this new ruler is not pleased with the flood of immigrants in his country. And this is what he says. He said to his people, Look, the Israelites are more numerous and powerful than we are. Let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies and fight against us and take possession of the land. If you're following along in your Bible or even looking at uh, the translation here, it says leave the country. That's a Hebrew idiom that's really hard to translate. But if, if you translate it that way, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like they're going to multiply and leave. Who cares? right, at that point, they're worried about the Israelites taking possession of their land and rising up in rebellion against them. That's the point of that, and, and so that's why I translated it the way I did. So the king is saying, if we don't deal with these immigrants now, they're going to join our enemies, and it's going to be a big problem later. Surely Pharaoh is exaggerating a little bit here, but I think it's aimed at accomplishing his political goals. Peter ends comments, Nations throughout history have tended to be afraid of losing their power to outsiders. So the Egyptian mentality at this point can easily be understood. 
What the Pharaoh did was to sound the alarmist note, calculated to get approval from the masses for his planned campaign of oppression that the Egyptians had fallen behind the foreigners in their midst and would need to act quickly to regain control. Verse 11, so the Egyptians assigned taskmakers, taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities of Pharaoh. But the more the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the people of Israel. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter. With difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work, they ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. Pharaoh's power, coupled with his paranoia, leads to a draconian policy of population control. And it is designed to gradually suppress the Israelite people. First step is to render their position in Egyptian society moot. No longer would they be an independent people, but they would be slaves. The Hebrew refugee problem is being solved by way of slavery. And enslaving them would accomplish, hypothetically, two things. It would rid them of any political or economic influence that they might have previously enjoyed. And because of this oppression, there would be a gradual reduction of numbers due to overwork and poor working conditions. People would die and also, uh, it's thought anyway, lack the desire to procreate. God's people are ultimately oppressed here because of fear. Their numbers are growing and the Egyptians dread them, the text tells us. So they take attempts to eliminate them or at least reduce their number. I think that injustice is often driven by fear. And the injustice we read about here seems a little bit familiar to us. After all, one of the hot-button issues in our country is how to address refugees and, and immigration. Let me say, no matter where you stand on these issues, I think one thing is certain for the Christian, that the Christian must love the immigrant. Christians are called to reflect the character of God by expressing a special care for the poor, a special care for the oppressed, a special care for the marginalized. How we are to care for them can be discussed and debated, but the fact that we are to care for them Well, that's not up for discussion, not if you believe the Bible. We cannot allow our love for neighbor to be curtailed by a fear of our neighbors. Our love for God must compel us to love the sojourner. God, after all, instructs his people to promote justice and to care for those who are hurting. He tells us as much as we read in Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 19. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. You also must love the foreigner since you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. God is a God of justice and he stands on the side of the oppressed. We ought to aim to bring him glory by imitating his character. And his character is laid out for us throughout the scriptures. Here are just a few ways that the Bible describes God's justice. Psalm 99.4, the mighty king loves justice. Psalm 103.6, 
The Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Psalm 146, 7 through 9. He executes justice for the exploited and gives food to the hungry. The Lord frees prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are oppressed. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects foreigners and helps the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Isaiah 117, learn to do what is good. Seek justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Isaiah 58, 6 and 7. Isn't the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness? To untie the ropes of the yoke? To set the oppressed free? And to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? To bring the poor and the homeless into your house? To clothe the naked when you see him? And not to ignore your own flesh and blood. There are many injustices in our world today, and we are called to care for those that are under the thumb of injustice. This means we are to love and care for those who are immigrants to our country in a lot of ways, not not just because God cares for them and calls us to justice, but because we've been called to go to all nations to make disciples of all nations, what a blessing it is when all the nations come to us. It makes it easier to share the gospel. We need to care for those who are oppressed. Our world today is rampant with injustice. The powerful continue to oppress the weak. Orphans are left and ignored. I mean, slavery is not a thing of the past. Human trafficking is the second largest organized crime in the world. It is estimated that there are 30 million slaves in our world. As Christians, we are called to enter into those sufferings, enter into those injustices, and to speak for those without a voice. We must speak on behalf of those that God loves. We mustn't allow fear to make us complicit in the abuse of others. Despite Pharaoh's attempt to suppress the Israelite population through this work, this slavery, we read something very interesting in verse 12. It's not what we expect. It says, but the more the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the people of Israel. God's people are suffering. They are enslaved. Their lives are bitter. But God is present and at work in their suffering. We don't expect, verse 12, we expect Egypt's oppression of Israel to be successful, but the more they oppress Israel, the more they multiply. Though the people of God feel that their God is absent, though their suffering is great, He's actually at work among them, fulfilling his promises and preparing to display his glory in their rescue. Yahweh is the Lord of history. This is a fact. He is not any less the Lord of history in times of trouble, nor do good times suggest a mere temporary spasm of his control over events. He is steady and sure. 
and the Israelites are to see their prolonged enslavement in light of God's character rather than to make conclusions about God's presence or absence on the basis of their own circumstances. God is not passive. He created all things. He sustains all things. He governs all things. And he is present in their suffering. And I think that we, like the Israelites, need to understand our sufferings in light of this fact, that God is present and at work. And if you haven't suffered, you will, right? We all suffer, just live long enough. We need to understand our sufferings in light of God's character. God has said that those who are in Christ are his children, that he will never leave them nor forsake them. And I think it's easy to feel as if God doesn't care when our lives go sideways, and they do. It's easy to feel abandoned, but we must press into what God has told us and trust his word more so than our feelings. How we perceive a matter does not determine its reality. God is present, and he does care. I think secondly, we need to understand that God is working in our circumstances. Our sufferings are not wasted. God uses them to produce a peculiar glory within us. John Piper says it this way, Not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to, the etern- to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory that you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It was doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what God is doing. Don't look to what is seen, but to what is unseen. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you're probably only aware of three of them. He is big. He is present. And He is at work. I have an odd illustration here. I don't know if it quite works, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. As I was thinking about God's work in our suffering this week, I said, you know, it might be a little bit like a surprise party, right? When somebody throws you a, a surprise party, they make all these arrangements to have you at the right place at the right time. Usually they take you out to dinner or something, and then you come into your house and you are met with those screams of surprise. And all of a sudden you look back over your evening and go, They had me at that right place at the right time for this purpose to get me to this surprise party. And so all of their planning, everything that was going on prior to your arrival makes sense to you now. So you can see it from a different perspective. I think that oftentimes we're not able to see God's purpose in this life. We're not going to be able to discern all the reasons for this. But we are able to trust him. We are able to trust that he is good. And his glory and the glory that he is working within us will become clear on the other side of Christ's return. What we are able to do in our suffering as we trust that he is good, we're able to lean into the arms of our God and wet his chest with our tears. Suffering, it does have that bitter, sweet taste to it. The sour weight of pain causes us to groan more earnestly for heaven to come. Come, Lord Jesus. It's not a prayer you pray when everything's going well, not typically. 
It's a prayer you pray when you realize that this world is broken and that you were made for the next. Somehow when we are crushed by grief, we find ourselves in this sweet fellowship with God. There is an inexplicable and deeply satisfying intimacy with God that is only found in the deepest caverns of despair. Bittersweet. It's good, but it gives us this experience of God that is amazing. It teaches us that He is present and He is at work. So when when tragedy strikes, when hardship comes, the Christian can smile at the pain, knowing that he or she can face any circumstance through Christ who gives them strength. Because their true security, their true life is unshakable. Their life is not wrapped up in the temporary nature of this world. No, it is beyond the walls of this world. Seated at the right hand of God and feeling just fine. Their life, our lives are hidden in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Christian can experience suffering and proclaim as Job once did. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. God's will cannot be thwarted. Circumstances do not determine God's plan for you. God's plans determine your circumstances. He is working all things together for your good and for His glory. Even if you can't see it. He's present and He's working in your sufferings. They're doing something. And Israel's suffering was doing something. Their suffering was paving the way for God to rescue them and to show his mighty works and to get glory. The new king of Egypt couldn't keep God from keeping his promise to multiply Jacob's house. And the more the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites, the more they grew. Pharaoh recognized that these Hebrew slaves were increasing despite their slavery, and so he came up with a different way to control them the secret killing of their sons. And so we read in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, I think I want to stop here and note, they're not the only two midwives, right? They're likely, as Keel and Delich inform us, uh, heads of a whole profession, and we're expected to communicate these instructions to everybody. There's probably more than two midwives to a group that's as big as it seems that they were, right? So anyhow, they're, they're the leaders. They're getting the credit. At any rate, Uh, He says to Shipra and Pua, When you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. Uh, Another translational issue. I know how much y'all love these. Most of your translations probably don't read like the the Holman. They probably say birth stool or birth stone, something uh, along those lines. And and what it is here, it's really difficult to see what's going on. Uh, Some have said this is a birth stool that a woman would lean on to give birth. Uh, Others have said it's a basin that the midwives would wash the child in after birth had been given. And others have said, well, stones, it's actually uh, a euphemism to to say check the the child's genitals, right? Like if you see stones and it's a boy, uh, get rid of him. 
At any rate, the, the point is the same. I'm glad you laughed, Bernice. Oh, that was comedic relief. I think it's funny. The point is, when she's delivering the baby, if you figure out that it's a boy, kill him. It's a pretty simple plan. Kill the future generation of men, marry their women, and we will have snuffed out the Israelite problem. Just one problem. The Hebrew midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before a midwife can get to them. The contrast before us is bright. Pharaoh is acting in fear, and so he moves to eliminate the Israelites. But the midwives, acting in fear, they move to preserve the people of God. They're, they value God. They value imitating God's character more than they value their lives because I assure you that they had to think, if Pharaoh finds out we're being disobedient, he will kill us. Still, they act to promote life, to promote justice. And the result is that God deals well with them. In verse 20 we read, So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. They had helped to build up the families of Israel, and now their own families would be built up by God. What a great reward. Now, if you are paying attention, or you've been around the Bible a whole lot, you are likely having a question run across your mind now, probably two of them. First, did the midwives lie? And then second, did God bless them for lying? Well, there are a number of positions on this issue, um, and so I'm going to share three of them with you. The last will be mine, and it will probably be the most controversial because it's a minority position. And so it will be fun uh, banter and conversation for lunch after church and throughout the week, and, and you can figure out where you come down on these issues. First, some argue that the midwives did not lie. They explain that by saying that while the midwives indeed feared God, they ensured that they wouldn't be in a position to kill the children. So they, they just made sure they wouldn't be present at birth. And so Douglas Stewart says it this way, one can imagine the midwives as part of this strategy regularly informing the Israelite women to do everything possible to give birth before they were summoned to the, the home. So we'll, you know, we'll take it from there, but make sure you give birth before, the ba before we arrive, right? Give birth first, then call us, like a loophole. And so this is a, a plausible explanation, I think, but, but I think it, it's wanting I think because it still makes liars of the midwives. Because the reason, the truthful reason, that they disobey Pharaoh's order to kill the infants isn't because they couldn't get to the house on time, right? They're not going, oh, Pharaoh, we really wanted to obey you, and if only we could have got there as the babies were being born, we would have killed them. No. The true reason that they are not killing the children, we're, we're given, is because they fear God. So that would have been the honest response, in my opinion. The second position, and this is the majority position, is to say, yes, the midwives did lie, but God does not bless them because of their lie. R. Allen Cole takes this position, writing, Even if they lied, it's not for their deceit that they are commended, but for their refusal to take innocent lives. 
In other words, they're commended for their faith, but not their deceit. Cole's understanding, again, is the predominant understanding among evangelicals, and he shares this position with John Murray and guys like uh, St. Augustine. Thirdly, the last position is a minority position, and and I hold this one along with uh, ethicists uh, by the name of John Frame, who I'm going to quote a lot. But I believe that, yes, the midwives did lie, and that God blessed them for doing so. Although I would define a lie a little bit differently, as you'll see. And we're going to talk more about bearing false witness when we get to the ninth commandment. But for now, let's start this way. The ninth commandment itself does not mandate truth in an abstract way, but in concrete relationships between believers and their neighbors. Second, a lie is not simply an untrue statement. For example, a mistake is not a lie. A hyperbolic statement is not a lie. For example, he preaches forever, right? Not a lie. Just a way of expressing truth, a way we use language. And the same is true of flatteries that are part of normal social discourse. Sincerely yours, I had a great time, so on and so forth. That might be literally untrue, but everybody understands that, and such language serves an edifying purpose as a kind of glue that holds civilized society together. We also see harmless deceptions such as these uh, in board games or um, even in sports, right? Nobody gets mad at the poker player for bluffing or at the uh, quarterback for running a play-action pass, right? The defense doesn't go, he lied to us. He said, showed run and he passed. These deceptions are expected. These uses of language and these behaviors, they're untrue, but nobody would claim that they fall under the scope of the ninth commandment. Thirdly, We can define a lie, if we define a lie as John Frame does, there is room for a holy deceit. This is how I would agree to define a lie. A lie is a word or an act that intentionally deceives a neighbor in order to do harm to him or her, or I would add, to bring harm upon oneself. Frame continues, we must give special attention to the term neighbor. Is everybody a neighbor? If so, the commandment would forbid us to mislead anybody in order to hurt that person. But, Frame argues, Scripture does not teach that everybody is our neighbor. Certainly, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 greatly expanded the Jews' concept of a neighbor. They wanted to construe it narrowly, at least to exclude the Gentiles so as to limit their responsibility. But Jesus taught that the chief question is not, who is my neighbor, but to whom shall I be a neighbor? And he answered the latter question by saying that we should be neighbors to anyone we find to be in need. But even the parable does not universalize the concept of neighbor. Not everyone we meet on the road is a person in need of care. Some may be thieves, others murderers. Some may be our enemies. Now, we are to love our enemies, but that love of enemies is not incompatible with the desire to bring God's judgment upon them. After all, God's own jealousy and anger is not incompatible with his general love for all creatures. Moreover, such love is not incompatible with self-defense, punishment, or a just war. It is in this way that I would understand a rather substantial number of biblical passages in which someone misleads an enemy without incurring any condemnation, and sometimes even being commended. Indeed, the ninth commandment does place the burden of proof on those who would seek to justify deception. However, just as the sixth commandment doesn't rule out all killing, 
but forces us to look elsewhere in Scripture to find out what killing is legitimate, so too the ninth commandment requires us to look elsewhere in Scripture to determine what kind of deception is legitimate. When we put this into practice, one thing becomes clear. Throughout Scripture, deception that is uncondemned and sometimes lauded always has to do with the promotion of justice against the wicked, and especially so when they seek innocent life. Now that was a mouthful. But let me try to give you an example. The famous ethical dilemma, you probably came across it when you were in school, is they say it's during World War II, and you are a Christian in Nazi Germany, and you are harboring Jews in your house. And the SS officer knocks on the door and he asks, got any Jews in here? What are you to do? It seems to be uh, you're between a rock and a hard place, right? The Christian on one hand would have to violate the sixth commandment, and tell the truth, and hand his Jewish friends over to the would-be murderers, or he would have to violate the ninth commandment and lie to the SS officers. But he would protect the lives of his Jewish friends. And the question goes, well, what, what's the right answer? It's supposed to be this huge dilemma. Ignore the fact that they've already taken part in deception by hiding them in the first place. I think the answer is, not only are is it permitted for you to deceive the SS officer in that situation, but it would be required. It's the obligation of the believer to deceive the Nazis because it's the obligation of the believer to promote justice and to preserve life. The deception in this case would be holy because it does those two things. Likewise, I believe that the Hebrew midwives deceived Pharaoh with this cooked-up story about rugged Israelite mothers who give birth before they can get to them, and that the point of their deception is to promote justice and preserve innocent life, and that it was a heroic action. Regardless of how you explain their their interaction with Pharaoh here, regardless of whichever position that you take uh, on that, the point, though, is this. They are heroines. Moses, who is the author of the text, he doesn't have a problem with what he's told us. He very much wants us to see Shipra and Pua as protagonists. He even mentions them by name. Now, this, this is something, mentioning them by name. He doesn't even mention Pharaoh by name. We can't figure out which Pharaoh this occurred under because Moses doesn't tell us his name. But he mentions the name of these women. Why? I mean, names mean something like beauty and splendor. I don't think that's why he mentions them. I think he mentions them because they do something heroic to preserve the people of God, to keep alive the people from whom the Messiah would come. And in this case, more short term, from whom Moses would come. These are important women. These are heroic women worthy of imitating because they promote justice. And they listen to God above all else. Pharaoh recognizes that his attempt at suppressing the Israelites through secret killing is not working out so well, and so he moves to an explicit genocide. Look at verse 22. Pharaoh then commanded his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. He goes public with his plan to slaughter the Hebrew infants. To this point in the story, we have seen that God was present and at work among the people, even as he multiplied them before this new ruler ruler ascended to the throne. 
We've seen that God was at work and present among his people as they were oppressed in slavery. We've seen that God was present and at work among his people as Pharaoh tried to quietly exterminate the men among them. And we will see that he is present and will be at work throughout Pharaoh's call to genocide. In fact, it is in the midst of this great evil that he would raise up a great mediator for Israel. A man who would lead God's people out of slavery and out of Egypt. It was on this stage that God had determined to display his glory in the life of Moses. And the Exodus is not the last time that God would be present and at work through suffering for his people's good and for his glory. No, in the future, there would be another king, another genocide, and a final mediator between God and his people. Matthew 2, 13 through 16. An angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child, Jesus, and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. Here it is. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem, who were two years old and under. Jesus is the true and better Moses. He's the true and better Israel. The exodus in the Old Testament anticipates the greater exodus that's to come with the coming of Christ in the New Testament. Just as Pharaoh failed to thwart the plan of God, so too did Herod. Friends, circumstances do not determine God's plan. God's plans determine circumstances. Just as Moses delivered the people of God out of slavery to the Egyptians, Jesus has delivered the people of God, those who have put their faith in Christ, out of slavery to sin. Friends, we are all guilty of sin. All of us have chosen to listen to our hearts rather than God's voice. And our rebellion against our Creator has earned us death. We deserve to die. But instead of giving us what we deserve, God resolved to suffer for us by coming as the man Christ Jesus and living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died and raising from the dead so that we could place our faith in him and be free from sin's penalty, the eternal wrath of God, and instead enjoy eternal peace with God and with one another. God is present and at work in your sufferings. You know, the only person who ever suffered alone, totally forsaken, was God the Son. And because he was forsaken, you and I never will be. And even as Jesus was abandoned on the cross, he was still able to smile at his suffering still able to endure the shame of the cross because of the joy set before him. You and I, our salvation. He was willing to go to the depths of the cross because of the heights of his love for us. 
And he endured the cross knowing, even though he couldn't feel God's presence, that God was at work in his suffering. And he was at work bringing about our salvation. Friends, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you can know that God will never leave you or forsake you. You can know that Romans 8.28 is true for you. It's a promise you need to hold dearly and close. All things work together for the good of those who love God. Those who are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Paul talks about it as if it's already done, because that is how sure your salvation is if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. Your suffering is not wasted. It's preparing you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So know that in your suffering, when times are hard, when you are crying out, God, where are you? How long, O Lord? that He is with you and He is at work to bring about something spectacular. Oh, friends, God is getting His glory. He's bringing glory to Himself by bringing us to Himself through the work of Christ and through His work in our lives right now. Brothers and sisters, take this truth with you this morning. God is present with you and He is at work among you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the gospel you have provided for us eternal life and that you've given to us abundant life even now. That you've provided for us the resources we need to face the brokenness and the sinful condition of this world. Father, we thank you that we can smile at our sufferings knowing that this isn't all there is that you are accomplishing something in us that has eternal ramifications, that somehow this world and us together with it will somehow be greater for having once been lost. We thank you that you are getting glory for yourself in our lives even now. We thank you that it makes sense for you to be the only selfish person in the universe. Because when everything is centered on you, all things work in harmony, in shalom, in perfect peace. And it is for this perfect peace we long and groan this morning. And we do so with smiles and with lips that give you praise and thanksgiving. Fill us with gratitude at your grace and at the cross once more, God. Thank you for saving and suffering for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.